we're entering into uncharted territories right now. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And so what we are going to look for, the people that we're going to pay a premium for, are people who are prepared to stand up and own their expertise. Say, I might not have all the answers, but I know this pathway. I know this journey. I have my ear to the ground for trends. And I'm going to be bringing you the best of my knowledge, translating the best of my knowledge for you regularly. And you can trust that I'm going to be ahead of the curve here. And you can look to me when you need some answers. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. So, here we are. Here we are. 2021 has to be one of the most eagerly anticipated years of recent times and 100 episodes into the Insight Influence journey. You know, honestly, I'm, I'm a little bit in shock with that last one. Three years ago, Insight Influence started, it started out over dinner with a friend. We were talking about how the tools of influence had changed over the last decade. And this is a friend I had worked with throughout my first, who had worked for me um, in my first venture, was working with me in my second venture. And we were just talking about how we were watching the pyramid of influence completely turn on its head from analog to digital, from those with a platform having the power and the voice to those with an iPhone. From brands being the central holder focus of attention to human beings becoming the central focus of attention. From the information age to a world of epic storytelling and from success equating currency in the bank, how much money you have or, or how much money you're able to make to success literally now being valued on the currents of attention that you're able to command. And I can still remember the exact day when we press go on the first episode or where I press go on the first episode. Um, I was placed in charge of that. Don't ask me why, but I was and probably would not have done it had, um, would have got myself caught up on perfection, probably, possibly forever. If someone incredible hadn't kept me accountable. Thank you, Lauren Kelly. And since then we've been on a ride myself and the team that I could not have imagined when we first started out. We've been on a deep dive into the world of global movements, WWF wrestling, that was a trip. The underbelly of Hollywood, FBI hostage negotiation, unskippable storytelling and algorithms and presidential politics. Throughout all of that, it was a single point of focus for us and for me, a single point of focus and curiosity and that is how do we decode this new age of influence that we have found ourselves in? And the essence of that being basically, what is it that makes the people, the movements, or the ideas, or the companies of today utterly compelling? Because it is very different than what made the people, ideas, movements, and companies utterly compelling 10, 20, or even five years ago. So for this episode, in case you've not guessed already, it's just going to be me. I'm flying solo. And I wanted to take a moment to just reflect on some of the lessons that I've learned over the past hundred episodes. And not only that, but some of the core lessons that I've seen play out or take quantum leaps over the past 12 to 24 months. And those that I believe are going to be pivotal in the 12 months that we have to come as we charge somewhat tentatively into this new year. But before I do, it, it feels appropriate and 
somewhat necessary to me to take a moment just to acknowledge the year that has been. You know, we started this year on a trajectory that changed very quickly for all of us. And I remember going into this phase when lockdown first happened, when our businesses and our careers and our lives and our families first underwent this giant shift. And I remember thinking, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. And I can remember being asked to be on podcasts. I can remember being interviewed. And the predominant voice in my head just kept saying, I don't know what to say. I feel like I just need to listen. I feel like I just need to sit back and listen because I don't have the words to describe this. I don't have the words to be useful. I don't have the words to translate this in a way that I feel is helpful. And so that's what I did. I sat back and it soon became apparent that nobody really knew what to say. And for me, as someone who defines my, my world with words, that was deeply unsettling. And I think that was deeply unsettling for many of us, and in particular those in leadership positions where you have people or communities looking to you to have the words. It felt like we had been rugby tackled, right? Rugby tackled off the road well traveled and onto a dirt track where nobody had suitable shoes, no one had packed a snack, and even the boldest amongst us stumbled pretty much just as much, if not more, than we stood. And so it opened a different conversation. I got to watch a new conversation unravel and unfold. And that was one of bravery, one of showing up, one of pulling close our communities, business, personal and virtual. And one that as I started to watch, began to amplify the speed and importance of the trends that interestingly enough, we had already been uncovering as part of the journey of this podcast. And those lessons, those are the lessons I want to talk a little bit about today. But in essence, some of the core things that, that we learned were that it turns out that the right words, they don't matter as much as consistently showing up. It also turns out that relying on fear as a tool of persuasion can get you a very long way, a very long way, but not all the way. It also turns out that becoming fluent in the questions of those you are there to lead or serve is way more important than being seen to have all of the answers. Now, as I'm recording this, the third wave looks like it's about to hit Sydney. Um, it's no longer shocking. Any adrenaline that, we, that was left has gone. Now it's about how quickly we can reset. How quickly can we reframe? How quickly can we focus on what is coming next? Assuming and surrendering to the fact that it will probably contain just as many curveballs, if not more, than the year that has just been. So. Back to where we began, where Inside Influence began 100 episodes ago. What can we double down on if we want to expand our influence in 2021? I'm going to frame these, these next five points as the five flips, five essential shifts in thinking, strategy, and mindset that we have been tracking, that I have been tracking throughout the past 12 months, and that I see playing out even more over the next 12 months. And these Thoughts, strategies, and mindsets are going to be the ones that those who stand out in the coming year are going to have in spades. So flip number one. Flip number one is the flip from micro-influence to nano-influence. Now, those of you who have been listening to the podcast for a while now, you'll have heard me talk about micro and macro influence before. 
Now, macro influence is just a very fancy way of saying that you're trying to talk to a large audience, a large group of people. You're trying to get and keep the attention of a large group of people. Now, 20 years ago, when I first started out in this world, in the world of thought leaders, influence, macro was all we had. We were trying to shout out into the world and get the attention of as many people as we could. And that, it kind of worked back then. Back then, you could be the guru of finance. You could be the guru of real estate. You could be the guru of cooking, parenting. There were very few platforms, very few voices, and it was rarefied air. Once you got to the top, you were pretty much guaranteed the ears of those you were trying to reach. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, those days be gone. Now there are way too many voices across way too many platforms to be heard by taking a macro-influence strategy. What we've seen is a move to micro-influence. A micro-influence is where you hyper-specialize. It's where you double down on a particular part or section of your audience. You really get hyper-focused about who exactly you need to talk to. And then you go hard at engaging and getting the attention of that particular space. It's a little bit like going into a crowded room and calling somebody by name. You are almost guaranteed that that particular person is going to turn around or anyone with that name is going to turn around. That's the flip from macro to micro. So what kind of numbers are we talking about here when we talk about micro influence? Well, I don't know if any of you have read the book by Kevin Kelly. If you haven't, please do. A book called 1000 True Fans. This idea that if you could pick 1000 people, a target market of 1000 people that you could engage with, serve, connect with in such a way that they would become absolutely loyal and devoted fans of what you do, your idea, your company, your brand. That was enough. That's micro-influence. That was enough for them to start talking to their networks, the people that they know, and you could build a very powerful, very profitable business off the back of that. Now what we're seeing in this flip that we're seeing again is a movement from micro to nano-influence. And nano-influence, you know, we were talking about laser focus before, we're at the pointy end of laser focus now. Nano-influence is a term that has been coined recently. There's some great research papers on it. We'll pop them in the show notes for you. And when we get down into the world of nano, we're talking 150, 150 people. Now, however you feel about this, it's a really interesting exercise. And I would, I'm going to recommend that you do this exercise just to sharpen your thinking, if nothing else. So if we look at 150 people, if you could only have 150 people on your database, if you could only have a community or a target market of 150 people that you could build a deep and meaningful relationship with, who would they be? Who would those 150 be? Now take it down even further. Who would the 15 be? Who would be the top 15 that if you could get and keep their attention, that would shift the needle on your business more so than anything else? So who would they be? Now, that doesn't mean that you just do business with 150 people. Just take that panic out of it. What it means is that those are your core focus for all your comms. You design everything with those people in mind. Every piece of communication, every sales strategy, every pitch, everything goes out. And you can even go as far as to give them a name, an avatar. Where do they go? What, who do they listen to? What language do they use? Tim Ferriss has this amazing question. It's actually one of a list of questions that I look at at the beginning of every year. And the question is this. Are you hunting antelope or field mice? And my translation of that question is, are you spending unjustifiable amounts of money and time trying to get the attention of people that can only move the needle on your business, on your idea, on your movement, just a tiny fraction? Or are you throwing everything at those few who could completely change the game? So let's have a let's have a look at numbers here. You know, when we saw that shift from macro to micro, what we saw was a four times uptick, four times more engagement and attention for those who moved away from trying to shout out at everybody to those who went down the hunt, the thousand true fans route. 
Now, numbers haven't come out in terms of the, the shift from micro to nano, but you'd want to believe, you better believe that it's going to be an awful lot larger than four times. Now, the numbers haven't come out on that shift from micro to nano that we're seeing, but if you specialize down that far, you better believe that you're going to see, I'm predicting another quantum leap in attention and engagement from the people that you're trying to reach just simply because you are calling them by name. So what do I want you to do right now? Well, firstly was the 150 to the 15. Think about that. Write them down. You probably can't write down 150, but at least write down 15. Who are the 15 people you could only talk to them? Who would they be? The next part of this flip is to get clear, to get clear about who it is that you're trying to reach. What space do you genuinely want to own? So the next question is the obvious question. How do we find that space? How do we find our space of nano influence, the space where we are uniquely qualified to stand out to 150 people that are going to make the largest impact to our business idea movement? There's a tool that I've used over the years. It's probably the simplest tool that I have ever come across when it comes to figuring out what space you can uniquely own. And I call it influence intersection. And the way that an influence intersection works is you take one world, just imagine a cross and the first line on the cross, that's the first world. Now that first world is a world where you have the insights, experience and mastery to stand out. Now that first world is usually the, the obvious world. It might be that you've worked in real estate for 20 years. You might be a financial planning company. You might have created a product in the tech space, which is very well known. So that's the first world. We all know that about you. Now we move on to the second world, and this is where it gets interesting. The second world where you have mastery, experience, and insights. Now, this second world that you're going to overlay on top of the first, that's usually in relation to you, your story, a unique situation or language that you speak that would resonate with your target market. So let's play this out for a second. Let's imagine that you were in the wellness, fitness and wellness space. So that's the first, the first world that you own, where you have mastery, experience, and insights. Now we overlay it with a second world, which is, for example, you might have experience and insights into a woman's fertility journey, or it might be for somebody training for a triathlon. You overlay those two worlds and now suddenly you're calling someone's name, calling someone's name in a crowded room because that space where those two lines intersect, that space, that is the impact zone. That is a space that only you can own. That is a language that very few people know, and that is where you stand out. So two jobs in our first flip from macro to micro to nano. Number one, who would your 150 be? And then your 15. And then what space is a space that only you can own? Do the influence intersection. What is your impact zone? How are you going to get the attention of those people? Flip number two. Flip number two is a flip from out interrupting as a strategy to out contributing. Now, again, 10, 20 years ago, five years ago, um, even when I was at university, there were three predominant ways of capturing people's attention. One was out shouting, volume based strategy. I'm going to raise the volume of my adverts. I'm going to raise my, my voice. I'm going to shout as loudly as I can to get your attention. We call that the gorilla effect. It's basically I will influence you by just being the loudest person in the room. The second was outspending. I'll get your attention. I'll get you to buy into me, buy my idea, join my movement by just spending as much money as I can to control your attention. I'm going to come at you as loudly and as frequently as I can. And that's how I'm going to get you engaged. And the third one, which is my personal non-favorite is out interruption, which this one strategy alone, I would say the majority of marketing and influence um, has been based on this one strategy. And that is very simply, I'm just going to interrupt you 
you, my target market, or you, the human being in front of me, as frequently as I can until you do what I want you to do. I'm just going to beat you down into buying from me, um, buying into me by interrupting you as frequently as possible via text messages, pop-ups, mail drops, direct sales calls, you name it. Now, I don't know about anyone listening to this particular episode, but I, I don't really love being interrupted and not many people do. And what we've seen recently is this flip away from our interruption. Now we're very good at avoiding interruption. We're very good at spending our own money to avoid adverts. We're very good at pausing a record and fast forwarding through adverts. We're very good at filtering out direct mail from our emails. We're very good at blocking unknown callers on our phone. So this out interruption strategy is limited and fairly ineffective in the digital world that we live in now. What we're seeing now and over recent years is a shift from out interrupting to out contributing. Now, out contributing is where you stand out by becoming what I would call the primary translator of a space. So the primary translator, the primary translator is somebody who goes out onto the fringes to places where I neither have the time, the experience or the bandwidth to go and brings back information for me on something that I care about using my language in easy to digest bites. That's a translator. Now, we need translators today more than we have ever needed them before because we've basically moved out of an information age. Previously, in the in information age, it was those that had the most information, had the most influence, had the most power. I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but I can certainly remember a salesman coming to the door when I was a kid selling the Encyclopedia Britannica. And it was this huge, for those of you who aren't old enough to remember, it was this huge array of books, took up an entire shelf on the bookcase. And it was pretty much a summary of all the information available on, on every topic known to humanity. And my parents and many parents spent more than they could afford on those books because it was the truth then that those that had access to the most information were the most likely to succeed. These days, we have no shortage of information. We can find out reams of information on any given topic in less than a second via our iPhones. You can watch a Harvard lecture in your lunch break. You can research how to make a hydrogen bomb terrifyingly as you sit there on your iPhone on a bus. So if we don't have any shortage of information anymore, who does the power belong to? I believe we've moved from an information age into a translator's age. The most powerful people now, the people we buy from, buy into, follow and share are the ones who are able to go out there, get all the information and then translate it for me into my language in small chunks. So I want you to do a bit of an exercise for me just to highlight the, the, the power and importance of translators. I want you to notice or have a think about who are the people that you follow? Who are the people who you go to for information, your trusted advisors? Who are the people where you read everything that they write, watch everything that they put out there, who you go to to try and figure out what to do next or how to, how to approach a certain situation? Those people are the translators of your world. Now, I can promise you, promise you that if you just have a look at exactly how they became that translator for you, it's because they took the complex, they took all the information out there and they've translated it in your language speaking directly to you and your situation. That is a translator. And that's what we need to become because those are the people that I'm seeing more and more now, those people who are standing out, who are charging a premium for their services because we have limited attention span now, limited time. And so those are the people who can save us time and attention. They're the ones that we're running to and especially in an uncertain marketplace. So next exercise, I want you just have a think about this for a second. How do you become the translator of your space, the primary translator? 
the best way that I know how to do that is to become a student of the world that, of those you are trying to influence. And we do that by becoming relentlessly obsessed with questions. Now, again, those who are long-term listeners, you'll have heard me bang on about questions for a long time now. What we're seeing at the moment is we're seeing a shift from the most powerful people and brands on the planet being those who have all the answers to being those who understand and actively go to learn about the questions of their target market. So why questions? Just think about it. We think in questions. We search in questions. By 2020, I think a recent Gartner research paper that came out saying that by 2022, the predominant um, mode of search is going to be voice search. It's going to be Alexa, it's going to be Siri or various iterations of Google Home, you name it. And when we search by voice in the, as our primary form, the way that we search is via question. Siri, tell me the best restaurant in my local area. Um, Google Home, who's the best financial planner in the topic of tax planning and retirement? So by understanding the questions of our target market, that is the only way we're going to get the attention of the people that we're trying to seek. In order to do that, we need to develop what I would call a relentless question radar. Now, here's the practical tool. A couple of things. Number one, create a note on your iPhone. For those of you who have Android, I don't know that world, whatever the version of notes is on an Android phone. I just want you to call it questions. Now, every single time you someone asks you a question about what you do, about your sphere of influence, about your area of expertise, I want you to write it down. I want you to keep a list of every single question you get asked. And then if you want to take it further, when you go into online forums, when you go to association events, I want you to keep your ear to the ground for other people's questions. For the questions that you hear, keep writing them down. Get more and more fluent in the questions of your target market, because when you own the questions, you own the attention. Next exercise, that's what I would call a relentless question radar. Let's take that even further. On a piece of paper, and you can do this with your team. On a piece of paper, I just want you to write four columns. Number one, process. Number two, trends. Number three, challenges. And number four, opportunities. And I want you to see if you can write the top, let's just call it the, the top six questions in each of those areas. What are the top six questions I would have about the processes in your world, about how to get from A to B, how to get it done? What are the top six questions I would ask about what opportunities I might have along the way? Well, the top six questions I would ask about the challenges that I'm going to face. And what are the top six questions I might ask about trends that are happening in your space? Just write those down. As good a guesses as you can make. Then what I want you to do is write another six questions underneath if you can. And those are the questions that people don't ask, but they should. The questions that people don't know they're going to need the answer to. And this is where you elevate up in terms of authority. It's one thing if you understand my questions before I've even asked them. That is going to lead me to directly engage with you, trust you, have you as an advisor in my world, if you understand my questions. That's the difference between talking at somebody, telling them what you want them to hear, and directly engaging with them and building trust. You go to another level in my eyes. If you can then say, look, those are great questions, but here are some of the questions that you don't know that you are going to have right now. Here are some of the challenges that you're, you don't even know you're going to hit. And let me tell you, we're going to hit them at this point. And we have strategies of getting around that. We've done this many times before. And let me show you how we're going to do that. Here are some opportunities that you don't know you're going to have yet. And this is how we're going to make sure that you can leverage them and get the most out of them possible. Here are some trends coming that not many people know about. That's when you really elevate up. So six questions that you often get asked. And then six questions that people aren't asking, but they should. What you've got there is you've got 12 questions 
under each of the columns. So that's if my maths is correct, which, you know, this time of the year it isn't often. That's 48, 48 questions. Now, for any of you who are looking for a content plan for 2021, that's, you know, give or take a week or two off at the beginning of the end of the year. You are even just to tackle a question a week for the rest of the year. That's a fairly solid content plan. For those of you who are looking to train sales teams, if they could understand the questions and the answers to each of those 48, how much better would they do in every single scenario, in pitches, in presentations? If you were looking to build an industry presentation to get out there and get your name out there more to take to the platform, you could build an entire presentation around the top 10 from that list. That is the power of understanding the questions of your target market. So... Number one, develop a, a relentless question radar, have a place to write them down as you hear about them, as they as they come to you. The next one, processes, trends, challenges, opportunities. Keep a list of questions under each of those sections and make them the basis for everything. If you want to take that even further, make a time in the diary for you and your team or a board of clients if you want to. And I would really recommend that to proactively collect questions from those who are at the front line of hearing them. Now let's have a look at the third flip. The third flip is the flip from information to epic storytelling. If the eyes and the ears of your target market belong to the translators, which they do, then the heart of your target market belongs always to the epic storytellers. So let's look a little bit at epic storytelling and how it's evolved over the past 12 months and where it looks to be going at the moment. Epic storytelling is basically, <laughs> it's not a new thing. We have always been, as human beings, wired for story. If you look at who you trust, who you connect with, it's usually through, through the vehicle of storytelling that we find and connect with another human being. You go back to the days of tribal times and you would have tribes that would come together, not even speaking the same language, but the sharing of stories with each other, the energy and the intent that comes with that, it completely bypasses your logical brain and goes to another place that I'm not smart enough to know, but a place where your entire nervous system calms down and you become involved in the world of that other human being and you meet on a human to human level. That is epic storytelling. And basically, we, the only word that we have for what it does is empathy. I can't, I can't know what it feels like to be you. I don't, can't know what it feels like to live in your world. I can't connect with you unless I can walk a mile in your shoes. And the only way I can do that is if you tell me what that is like. Now, epic storytelling usually has three main components to it. Number one, epic stories are personal. They are personal. They are, do I believe you is the essence of it being personal. Have you walked this road before or have you held the hand of someone else who has walked this road before? Tell me about that. Tell me about those journeys. That's the first element of an epic story. The second element of an epic story is, is it um, relevant to me? Is this story that you're telling even relevant to my world? Do you know me well enough? Again, go back to your 150. Do you know me well enough? Am I in your impact zone firmly enough that whatever stories you tell are guaranteed to have me go, oh, this is one's for me. This one speaks to my world. And the only way we can know that is to use what I would call the keep it or share it rule. And that is if I put this out there, either verbally, via my content marketing, via my presentations, whatever my methodology is, if I put this out there, is it valuable enough to this human being that they will either keep it or share it? Keep it to refer to again later or share it with somebody else that they know. That's when you know you've hit the mark. And I would suggest in the rule in, in my office has always been that if that is not the case, if it, if it doesn't hit the keep it or share it rule, then it doesn't leave the building. So keep it or share it. Is it relevant? Number three, is it emotive? 
Now, I'm always really careful with this word. Is it a motive? By a motive, I do not mean to give some context. I do not mean does it use dramatic language, um, fear-based language. Um, we're seeing a lot of that at the moment. We've had a year of fear um, in very in a very real and very survival-based sense. Now, fearful language is language that is based on drama, on outrage, and on scarcity. Now, unfortunately for us human beings, that is probably the fastest, most effective way to reach anybody. We are primarily wired to pay attention to things that will threaten our survival. So if you want to get my attention fast using fear-based language, that's the, that's the, the best and most effective way you can do it in the short term. In the long term, it's morally dubious at best and very ineffective when you look further down, further down the track. So it's not a road that I recommend. What I do recommend, however, is that you use emotional language. And that is what we would call charismatic language. Every target market has charismatic language. And that is the language that they use when they are talking amongst themselves to describe the opportunities, challenges, ideas that they're having. And it's different for everybody. I'll give you an example. You know, I speak a lot to different industries and, you know, I did, I did the spate of doing a lot of real estate presentations and a word that will always get the attention of a real estate agent is the word dominate, dominate the marketplace. That is what we would call a charismatic word for that space. Now I use that space to a room full of nurses. It's going to have the opposite effect. So again, this is where you become a student of your target market. What language do they use? Step outside your own technical language, the language that you use, that you understand, that you love, all the places that we, you know, and the words that we hide behind. What language does your target market use? That is their emotive, charismatic language. And use that. And that's going to that's gonna get through far more than you speaking your language to them. So those are three rules of epic storytelling. Next... What I want to talk about is the Netflix effect. Now, we've talked about the Netflix effect before. You'll have heard Ben Jones talk about it in in our interviews. I've interviewed him, I think, every year for the past three years. I keep bringing him back. He is the, the head of Unskippable Labs for Google. So basically, for Unskippable Labs is a team within Google's whose job it is to figure out what stories get traction on YouTube. Now, there are over 5 billion hours of video uploaded to YouTube every single day. Like, blow your mind numbers. And all they do is look with a laser sharp focus at those stories and the ones that get traction, the ones that we skip, you know, the skip button in the bottom right hand corner, the ones that we skip, the ones that we don't skip and try and decode what stories get traction. So he, more than any other human being on the planet at the moment, I believe has the key to figuring out where epic storytelling is going. And one of the things that he has spoken about for a while, but we saw take oh, incredible leaps last year is what he calls the Netflix effect. And the Netflix effect is basically the, the premise that Netflix is literally rewiring or Netflix stan, you name it, rewiring our brain when it comes to the type of stories that we expect. What we expect now is we expect highly engaging storytelling in two ways. Firstly, upfront, the first kind of 20 seconds of a story needs to be so compelling, needs to be so interesting, so engaging that we'll, we'll come in, we'll follow you on along for the ride. And you'll notice that on Netflix in the ads, in the trailers, at the beginning of any episode, they get you in hard, they get you in fast. That's part of the Netflix effect. The other fascinating part of the Netflix effect is that once you get us, this idea that human beings have a shorter attention span than ever before, which is true empirically. I think it's at eight seconds now. The Netflix effect just throws that in the bin. Once you have us, 
we will then give you unlimited amounts of our attention. I mean, raise hands for me. Actually, if you're driving, please don't. I can't see you anyway. Who has binge watched more shows in 2020 than possibly the rest of their life combined? Right. We we spent most of 2020 Netflixing ourselves into a coma. This is unheard of in the world of storytelling. The fact that someone would sit there and, and watch hours and hours and hours of a story is unheard of. That flies in the face of the fact that we have shorter attention spans, apparently. So there's those two things. You've got to get us in fast. And then if you can keep up momentum, we will give you unlimited amounts of our attention. If you can keep the story going, if we can keep it personal, keep it relevant and keep it emotive. So that's the Netflix effect. That's another thing that, we're, that we've been seeing. On top of that, you layer on top of that, and that's raising the bar on storytelling to unprecedented levels. Next, what we're seeing is another, something else I got from Ben Jones is the vanilla ice cream problem. And the vanilla ice cream problem is a bit of a paradox in that what we love to consume, so let's look at ice cream. What we love to consume is we love to consume all the funky flavors, all the diverse array of flavors on the planet. You know, we like we want vanilla crumble with cookie dough mocha pretzel smash. That's just my ideal flavor of ice cream. We want it, we want all of it. We want to know what all of it tastes like combined together in different funky forms. And then when we look at our content. When we look at the content that we consume, it's the same. We want content that's down and dirty and not polished from different voices in different ways on different platforms. We want it to be interesting. We want it to be off the cuff. We want to see people's processes, not their perfection. We want to know what's happening behind the scenes. That's the type of content that we want to consume. But what happens when we come to make content is that we assume that everybody wants vanilla. Despite the fact that we know what we love, we assume that everybody else wants vanilla from us. We assume that everybody else wants our content to be perfect, to be polished, to be highly scripted, to be absolutely non-arguably correct, not put anything out there that's just interesting or creative or would provoke conversation. Now, I'm not saying not factual, but just ideas that we're exploring at that point in time. So that's the vanilla ice cream problem. It's what we love versus what we assume everybody else loves. And so those who are going to stand out as we go forward into 2021 are going to be those who can step away from vanilla, who can do what Marion Farrelly, again, another amazing guest that we've had on the podcast who created Big Brother X Factor, what she beautifully called the flip from assuming that everybody should be interested in, in us into becoming interesting, into actually owning the space of the most interesting voice in our space. Finally, on the topic of epic storytelling, one of the biggest things that I learned this year was from Cody Keenan. And Cody Keenan is the speechwriter to President Barack Obama, ex-President Barack Obama. And we were talking about, you know, how do you put together a story that is supposed to engage the hearts and minds of an entire nation on a topic that they, that either they care deeply about on one end of the spectrum or they've never thought about and not really cared about much up until now. And he had this beautiful question as a place to start. Whenever he has to write a speech with Obama, they sit down and they always start with these two questions when it comes to epic storytelling. Question number one, what is it that we want to say? And question number two, why are or why is he the only person who can say it? What experience, journey, perspective does he have that nobody else has that he can bring to this story? Again, personal, relevant and emotive. 
So a combination of all those things, I believe, is what is going to make the epic storytellers of the next 12 to 24 months. It's a combination of understanding the digital world, how it is completely rewiring our behavior, and at the same time, having the courage to show up and express our stories in new, different, intriguing and exciting ways. So the fourth flip, the fourth flip is the flip from control to collaboration. If you look at the primary assets that organizations hold right now and individuals, that asset is their community. It is the interest, engagement, and eyes and ears of a certain group of people. And you're seeing entire organizations sold now who have never even turned a profit just based on the engagement of a community alone. And so if that's our primary asset, if that's our number one tool, then it would seem fairly natural to not want to share that, to not bring anybody else in, lest you lose some of your community to this other person or to this other brand. What we're seeing though now is the most powerful organizations in in human beings are actively bringing other other people into their community, co-creating on content, co-creating on products. I actually, just this morning, I was reading about a co-creation between Tesla and a tequila brand, Tesla tequila. That diversification into whole other channels can happen when you go out there and start co-creating. Interestingly enough, someone sent me the Forbes rich list recently. And if you look at the top 10 of that list, I would say a, a majority of those individuals are people who made it big in 2020 through collaboration, through taking what they had at the beginning of the year and combining it with other brands, other channels, other individuals to amplify their reach in ways that they could not have done alone. So how do we do that? And why do we do that? Well, it's, we call it the halo effect. So basically if I, if I have your trust, I have in your eyes a halo. You come to me for information, for my unique perspective on information. If I bring somebody else in, which essentially is all this podcast is, if I bring somebody else in and go, I believe this person to be someone you should know about, whose ideas I believe have value for you. What happens is my halo widens and it comes to encompass them. You automatically trust them because I have made the introduction. And that's the halo effect. Now, all of a sudden, that person has access to my particular channel, to my particular audience. If they then go and share that episode within their audience, then I also receive the benefits of their halo. And the reach for that episode has doubled, quadrupled, 10x, depending on the individual involved. And that's the amplification that we can reach when we co-create, when we collaborate with other people. Now, the best way to look at collaboration is to step out of this idea of control that this is mine. Don't want to bring anybody else in. It's fear-based response. What if they're more interesting than me? What if, um, what if people go off and they stop listening to this particular episode? They go down a rabbit hole with this person and they never come back. That's a fear-based approach to influence. Instead, a collaborative approach to influence is to look at the questions of your target market. Go back to that relentless question radar that we talked about. Look at their questions. Some of those questions you're going to be uniquely qualified to answer. Some of those questions are going to be better answered by somebody else, by other experts, by members of your team, by your suppliers, by non-competing collaborators who own various parts of the journey for your target market. You know, you might be a financial advisor You might pull in someone who's a mortgage broker or someone who's a a tax specialist. Look at those questions. Who else can you bring in? And then start co-creating with those individuals and co-create with intent. You can go out to those individuals and say, look, I really want to build something with you. I will share it amongst my channels. Will you share it amongst yours? 
couple of examples here. Number one that I'm following at the moment that I'm loving is Macy's, Macy's Retail in the United States. Now, Macy's discovered that they were they were seeing a drop in engagement in brand-to-consumer marketing. People love Macy's, but they weren't necessarily following Macy's. They weren't necessarily interested in what Macy's was doing. So what they did, again, rather than fear-based strategy of control and out-shouting, out-interrupting, out-voluming their previous strategies, they took a step back and they said, right, how can we, how can we co-create here? How can we step up the quality of our storytelling by involving other people, other collaborators? And they went out into their, their teams, they went out into their staff base and they said, look, what we have here is we have a bunch of really passionate fashionistas under this roof, people who love fashion, people who love what we do and on the cutting edge of trends, why don't we give the platform to them? Why don't we shine a light on those people? And they created this thing called Macy's Style Crew. Amazing initiative. And they said to those individuals that we will back you. We'll give you a platform. You bring your creativity, your storytelling. You bring what you love, what you know about the trends that are happening in your world. We will co-create content with you. And if you'll put it out into your networks. And so it began. And these guys started putting, started making these incredible videos, started making amazing content. You know, guys, I, for those of you who love this particular brand, I love this particular brand too. I've been waiting for the latest jacket to come in. It arrived this morning. I'm just going to pop it on, show you what it looks like. Have a look at the pockets. Look at the lining, the natural energy of those who are passionate about what they did. And it started to grow and grow and grow. And I think they started with 20 star crew members. They've now got 400 star crew members. And I don't know for sure, but if I were them, I'd be looking at a business model around that within the brand of Macy's. And so that's one example. Another example, and I could keep going, another example um, that you can actively go and research, Lisa Messenger, who was a previous podcast guest um, on the show, she started a magazine called Collective, The Collective, and she started from scratch and scaled it to incredible heights, millions of readers all over the world. And she basically bootstrapped that magazine with very little funding using, I think, her own money and, and a minimal number of investors. And she did that through collaboration. And she talks about this, this idea that I love that money is not the only currency. In fact, money is probably one of the least valuable currencies that you own. The better currency is collaboration. And so she came up with this really amazing strategy of the people that she put on the front cover of that magazine, rather than the celebrities that were on the front cover of every other magazine, she went out to find the influencers. She was like, who has the eyes and ears of my target market? Who already has the engagement of the people that I'm trying to reach? I'll put them on the front cover and I'll do a deal with them to say, look, if I put you on the front cover, will you share the, the, the cover of this magazine with your target market or with your community? And she built that way. And she built a community around these ideas, a community around these people, around this magazine that I think in the publishing world had never been seen before, all through this philosophy that money is not the only currency. So that's the shift, the shift there from control, from guarding your database, guarding your community like your life depends on it, to opening up the gates and saying, right, what are the questions of my target market? Who can answer those questions better than me? And who has the eyes and the ears of my target market already that might be willing to co-create something with me and share it amongst their communities? The fifth and final flip is the flip from confidence to certainty. And I've made no secret of my dislike for the word confidence over the years. I think it's because I've never heard or seen the word confidence used in a way that is in any way enabling. I've only ever seen the word used in a way that is served as a block to individuals, to ideas, to great companies, to great movements. 
Now, I've been doing this work for over 20 years, and I've been lucky enough, fortunate enough, blessed enough to work with some of the most brilliant minds on the planet, CEOs, politicians, authors, thought leaders. And I can tell you in the background of all of those journeys, I have never once seen the word confidence play out. I've not heard it discussed. I've not heard it mentioned. It's just not in the room. And so it was quite confusing to me and it was quite confusing to me at the beginning of my career when I would go out there into industry and, and, and talk about the tools to stand out, to own your voice, to make a difference, to create the world that you want to create. And I would keep hearing this word come back, this word confidence. I would do that if only I were more confident. I will raise my hand. I will say no. I will stand up. I will make my voice heard. I will start that, end this when I feel more confident. And it was really perplexing to me because I'd just never seen that word discussed in, in this other echelon of life where these people were doing these amazing things. And if it was such a big thing, you would think that it would be a constant topic of conversation. And it's not. And I'll tell you why. It's because that word, when you let it go, ceases to exist. Confidence is not the ingredient. It is the result. Confidence shows up when we show up over and over and over again. Confidence isn't something that arrives, that the, the skies don't open, angels don't start to sing, a, a sunbeam does not shine upon you, and then one day suddenly you feel more confident. What we do is we show up. We show up when our voice is breaking. We show up when our knees are shaking. We, we show up in moments where we don't feel like we're enough. We show up in moments where we feel like we're too much. We keep showing up and showing up and we earn confidence. We earn influence. Influence shows up when we show up. And by the time you have shown up over and over and over again, confidence arrives. It, sh it, it arrives. It's the result. And trust me, by the time it arrives, you don't need it anymore. Your requirement for it has gone because you have now, in the words of Amy Cummy, you have become it. And so I'd, I hate hearing people talk about this word confidence as if it's a prerequisite to doing great things. It's not. It's a side product of doing great things. What I want for you, what I would rather you have is something that you can claim right now. And that is certainty. To communicate with certainty. And to communicate with certainty sounds a little bit like this. It is to say that today... I give you the best that I have. I give you the benefits of all my experience, of my entire journey, of every single mistake I have ever made, every winner I have ever had, every single person I have met along the way and collaborated with. Today, I give you the best that I have, the best that I know. And tomorrow, if something else comes up, if new information arises, you better believe that I will change my mind. I will, to use a very overused word this year, I will pivot. But today, I can only bring you the best that I have, and I can do that with certainty. Using another powerful woman as a quote, what I know for sure today is this. That you can do now. That has gravity to it. To communicate with certainty has gravity. And that's what I want for you. I don't want confidence for you. I want gravity for you. We are going to need people with a mindset of certainty more than probably ever before in recent times in the coming year or, or 24 months. We're entering into uncharted territories right now. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And so what we are going to look for, the people that we're going to pay a premium for, are people who are prepared to stand up and own their expertise. Say, so I might not have all the answers, but I know this pathway. I know this journey. I have my ear to the ground for trends. And I'm going to be bringing you the best of my knowledge, translating the best of my knowledge for you regularly. And you can trust that I'm going to be ahead of the curve here. And you can look to me when you need some answers. Those people, the people that communicate with certainty, are going to be the people who stand out. 
Now, what will stop us? What will stop you from owning your certainty? And falling back on that word again, that word confidence. I think one of the biggest things that stops us is the idea that we don't have all the answers, that somebody might catch us out. Somebody might disagree with us, right? Somebody might put their hand up and say, I think that that's wrong. I don't think you have all the information. And let me tell you that if you're going to stand up and be seen, that will happen. That's, that's going to happen. Newton's third law, you know, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. It's physics. <laughs> Listen to me talk as if I'm an expert in physics. It's going to happen. And that's where the curiosity part comes in. You don't need all the answers. Trust doesn't lie in having all the answers. The people that we trust are the people who understand our questions and then have enough certainty, enough gravity about them to go, actually, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Let me do some research. I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to come back to you in a couple of days and I'll bring my thoughts on the topic and let's have a discussion. You know, thank you for your input. That gave me a piece of knowledge that I didn't, I wasn't privy to before. I'm going to look into that. Staying open. We don't have all the answers. Nobody does. And not only that, but when we don't have the answers, one of the best things that we can do as leaders is to develop and communicate a framework for decision-making. And I think it was Bill Coletti that taught me this on one of the episodes during lockdown when we talked about crisis communication. He said that what your teams are looking for right now from you is not for you to have the answers. What we're looking for is that you have a framework for decision-making that you believe in and that we can believe in. Step one, we're looking at these factors. When this comes into play, we will then make this decision. Step two, we're going to be monitoring these trends. And when we see this movement, we're going to be making this decision. Your job as a leader is to navigate the path forward for us, not have all the answers, but to have a map that we can believe in, that we can buy into. And the same thing as a trusted advisor. Do you have a map that we can buy into? Do you communicate it with certainty? So that's my final question for you. Where are you waiting on confidence right now? Where, what part of your life, and you will know where it is, is that word showing up as a block for you, as a way of putting it off to a, a later, greater time that I promise you will, will never come? Where can you claim your certainty? Where can you stop waiting for permission? And where, which is my own personal poison, are you letting perfection, the idea that you should have all the answers and the exact right words in the exact right order before you will speak up? And how can you let go of those things and focus on communicating with certainty and staying curious instead? If 100 episodes has taught me anything at all, it's that we all rise to the quality of the ideas and the stories that we surround ourselves with, that we pay attention to, that we give that most valuable currency of our bandwidth to, and that we share with other people. So as I close on this episode, I just, I just want to say a massive thank you to every single guest that has contributed over the past few years. Every single incredible mind that has shown up and communicated what they know from a place of certainty, translated things for me and hopefully for you from their own unique experiences using their own unique and grippingly human stories. This podcast is and has always been my personal MBA, the place where I come hopefully with you because I always feel you right behind me to sharpen my sword and to exercise my own curiosity on how we can take our influence to another level stand up, own our voice and make change at a level that we might not have thought was possible. And also, and importantly for me, a place where I can question the smallness of my own stories 
about what I'm capable of, about what we're com- capable of as organizations and communities and in a larger sense as nations. So thank you to every single guest, not only that, but to the amazing team that keeps both this show and me on the road in lockdown, out of lockdown, through babies and through a variety of other crazy stories, which I'll probably make an episode about one of these days. Thank you. You know exactly who you are. I also want to acknowledge the greatest gift of this podcast, which is you, the listeners all over the world. And honestly, I am always constantly blown away by how many nations we have contributing to this podcast. Talk about collaborative effort. How many of you email, DM, comment, share your ideas, experiences, suggestions on topics and guests? There's literally, you have no idea how many hours we spend as the Inside Influence team diving down rabbit holes that you send through for us crazy guest suggestions, um, investigations into topics that you want to see us go on. It's taken us so many amazing places we could have never gone in alone. So we love them. Keep them coming. We've got some epic plans for 2021. So finally, on that note, as I'm about to lay down my microphone for what will be the last time in 2020 and close my laptop for the last time this year. It's my wholehearted wish that you stay safe, stay well, stay unwaveringly together. I think that that has to be one of the the biggest things this year that I would wish for us, that we stay unwaveringly together. And finally, that you stay committed to whatever change it is that you want to make next year, big or small, personal, professional, whether you're looking to change the world or just, which is probably the thing, one of the things we need the most right now, looking for the ability, the tools and the courage to change your own mind. Regardless, stay on track and we will stay committed to bringing you as many tools as we can for your journey ahead. Happy New Year, everyone. And I just, I can't wait to kick it with you in 2021. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.